these microphone things work a lot better when you turn them on. I love it. We are uh, concluding our series in Matthew chapter 10, Jesus' Sermon on Mission. And we've talked for the last several weeks as we've walked through Matthew chapter 10 that Matthew has written his gospel in such a way that there are five specific sermons. Everybody knows the first and most famous, the Sermon on the Mount. You can turn your cheek, walk the extra mile. Nobody knows Jesus' Sermon on Mission. So one of the things that breaks my heart is, is, is a group of Bible-believing Christians who want to do the things that God wants us to do. Why is Matthew 10 not as famous as Matthew 5 through 7? Because Jesus calls us to mission. And so over the last several weeks, as we've been talking about uh, the way Matthew breaks down chapter 10, he begins by giving his disciples travel instructions. He tells them where to go and how to, how to do it. So he gives very specific instructions. Don't, don't pack any bags. Uh, go to these towns, not to these towns. And here's the way I want you to do it. He continues on by not just telling them about their travel instructions, but he warns them that trouble will be coming. Uh, people will not be responsive to the message. And as time continues to, to, to grow and the Christian faith begins to expand, there will be hatred, there will be persecution, there will be bad things that happen. And he says, in spite of the trouble, I want you to trust me so much that you will allow me to put you in dangerous situations. I'm a dad, I've got four kids, and so when they're standing up somewhere high, we went to Crowder's Mountain Friday, climbing down the rocks, and the little boy's up there, and he's like looking at the cliff, and I'm saying, jump to me, he's like, it's dangerous, you know, but there's trust, that we're willing to put ourselves in situations where we will trust God, even when he says that there is trouble, and you have to ask yourself, um, you came to church today to be encouraged, to hear a word from God. How many of you want more trouble this week? Anybody have enough trouble this week? Say, all right, it's, it's done. My, my trouble bucket is full. I don't want any. And now you're saying, Jesus wants to give me more trouble. No, thank you. Here's the thing. What would encourage a disciple to say, God, I, I trust you, and I will put myself fully in your hands, even in the midst of trouble? It's because for a true disciple, our trust in the midst of trouble is because the gospel is our treasure. The gospel is our treasure. It's precious to us. We think that there are things that our commanding officer has told us that we need to do. And if it's not me, then who? And if it's not you, then who? And so we are willing to put ourselves out because we treasure the gospel. So when we say the word treasure... You know, the word treasure, there's something that pops into your mind immediately when you hear that. It's something that's precious. It's something that's beyond value. Um, for some of you, it might be something sentimental that's not really worth a whole lot. If you put that thing up for sale in your garage sale, you know, somebody might not give you much for it. But it's precious to you because it's of sentimental value. You've heard the phrase, one man's trash is another man's treasure. That's why garage sales exist. There's lots of trash treasure out there that you might get a deal on. And so the truth is, when we talk about treasure, we may value things differently. You know, what may be of sentimental value in something that I may be willing to shell out big bucks for, you may go, that's junk. I wouldn't, I wouldn't want that. And so we may value things differently, but when we come to the gospel, don't we discover that the message that is there is dealing with the most important thing that you could ever deal with? 
politicians have waxed eloquent over the last few weeks telling you what they think is wrong with the world and how to fix it. But let me ask you, what legislation is going to fix a sinful human heart? The politicians are part of the problem. Oh, and so are the people who elect them. That's you and me. The problem is universal, and it's not enacted by better laws. We, we have to have better hearts. And that means that the deepest solution to the world's problems is the gospel. It tells us everything that's wrong with the world. It's not a political system. It's not communism. It's not socialism. It's sin. And it tells us that the only way to make things right again is to truly trust Christ. With the gospel message, the greatest of rewards is associated with it. And the most damning dangers are associated with disregarding it. So here's my question for you this morning. If a disciple is willing to trust Christ through trouble because he treasures the gospel, how do we treasure the gospel? I asked this in, my, in, in our first service this morning. If we had an entrance exam this morning, a one-question quiz for you to get in the door of the church, and we asked the question, this week, how did you treasure the gospel? And if you can't answer that in 10 seconds or less, you don't come in. How many people be in church here this morning? I'm not saying, did you appreciate the gospel this week? I'm not saying, did you believe the gospel this week? I'm saying, did you treasure it? Did it make one hill of beans difference in how you lived this week? Did you treasure the gospel? And we hear that question, we, we, you know, we ponder, we cross our leg, we mm, treasure the gospel. We'll find this morning in our passage that the Bible gives us three very simple answers on how we can treasure the gospel. So if you don't have a copy of the scriptures, uh, there should be a pew Bible in front of you. Page 724 is where we're going to be. Uh, Matthew chapter 10, we'll start in verse 32 and go to the end of the, um, end of the chapter there. And the very first thing that Jesus says <clears throat> is that we treasure the gospel by openly identifying with Christ. Listen to the words of verses 32 through 34. Jesus says this, therefore, Everyone who will acknowledge me before men, I will also acknowledge him before my Father in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father in heaven. It starts off with a unique word, as Jesus is telling us, to openly identify with him. He says we have to acknowledge him. Now the word for acknowledge is a Greek word called homo legeo. It means to confess. Homo the same, logeo to say. To say the same thing. We say the same thing that God says about Christ. We say the same thing that God says about sin. We say the same thing that God says about us, that we're sinners, and apart from Christ, there's no hope for our relationship with God to be made right. Our world is broken, and we helped break it. Like a kid with a brand new toy on Christmas. We got it, we played with it, we broke it, and now we want to fuss when it's really our fault. And so the Bible begins by telling us one of the ways we openly identify with Christ is confessing, saying the same thing, to affirm or to agree with. And this is not simply just go, well, yeah, I believe that. Because we could take our best, most studied Sunday school teacher today and put him in a Bible quiz against a demon and he would lose every time. Because the demons know, they affirm the truth, they just don't believe it, they don't confess it. And so when we say acknowledging Christ, I'm not asking, do you merely believe that Christ was a historical figure that lived 2,000 years ago? Asking, do you trust Christ? You put your life in his hands. Are you saying the same thing? Are you confessing? But it gives us a context. It says, uh, everyone who will acknowledge or confess me, where? In their heart? In their closet? In the privacy of their own home? No, before men. It says we have to 
confess him before men. There must be some kind of public acknowledgement. Listen, if you tell me you're on a football team, and I never see you wear the jersey, I never see you get on the bus, and when I show up at the game, I don't see you on the sideline, what am I going to believe? You're on the team. And we've grown up in a culture that's so anti-institutional, we actually tell people, you can be a, a, a fine, everything's cool with you, Christian, and not go to church. Really? Really? So the, the church that God formed with his own blood, the institution that he calls his bride, that he planned from the foundation of the world, is so irrelevant that it has no, no bearing on your Christian life. Okay. Um, I think I'm going to go with Jesus on that one. That it's his bride, that he cares for it. And so he's telling us that we have to acknowledge it publicly. We have to be on the team. I had the chance to go to Charleston this week. Traveled on a business trip with, with Ed LaRock. And we stopped at a truck stop, because when you travel with Ed LaRock, that's what you do. And um, we, get, we get to the truck stop, and all of a sudden he starts talking to someone. I'm like, man, Ed is so outgoing, I won't be like him when I grow up. And I realized that the logo that's on his shirt is on that guy's shirt, too. Now, he knew the guy, but even if he didn't know the guy, there would be a sense of camaraderie, because they're on the same team. And that's what Jesus is saying. We have to openly identify with him. We have to do it publicly. Listen to Romans 10, 9, and 10. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Not with the mind, internal, private, and secret, but with the mouth, loud, outgoing, and public. And so there are two ways, Christians, that we confess Christ. And as a group of Baptists, the first way that we confess Christ is through baptism. Jesus has said, this is the way you start the relationship with me. You be baptized to identify with me. What happens when you're baptized? You are affirming that Jesus died and was resurrected. What happens when we put someone up there? We bury them, not in the ground and not permanently. Quinn, so temporarily, I promise. Just a few seconds. We bury you in the water because Jesus was buried in the grave. And we raise you up to walk in a newness of life that only Christ can bring. And you confess when you're being baptized that Jesus Christ is Lord. I'm on his team. I want to wear his jersey, put his logo on my shirt. I'm going to live for him. That's the way we start our public confession of who Christ is. The second way is even more challenging. It's every day, every minute that you live, what you say and what you do. What you think. Your words, your actions, your attitudes, your motivations. We confess Christ initially by identifying with Christ in baptism. But we uh, confess Christ repeatedly, continually through living out what we say we believe. And so Jesus says this. He says, listen, if you confess me, I'll confess you. Great promise. That's a great promise. If you have sought to be faithful to Christ, you don't need to worry about his faithfulness to you. He will confess you before the Father. Oh, but there's a terrible danger. He says, if you deny me before men, I will deny you before my Father. He makes a relationship. Our standing before the Father is in direct relationship to our standing with Jesus before men. And if we want to be a secret Christian, out of the limelight, in the shadows, kind of out of the focus, he says, you can choose to do that. But just know that you will your choice will determine some things that I will do too. 
Don't be ashamed of the gospel. Don't be ashamed of being called out as one of Jesus' children. He says that. And he continues on. He says, listen, what if um, this whole promise and danger thing, we confess him, he confesses us. Let me turn the question around in a different way. If, um, if Jesus identified with you the same way you identify with him, would that be a good thing? I don't know if that question rings true with you. If you're lackluster in your affection for Christ, and he says, okay, I see how you want it. Would you like for me to return the same affection to you that you have returned to me? Because listen, Jesus gets a raw deal every day of the week. His love for us is perfect. It's flawless. It's pure. What's our love like for Christ? It's at least imperfect, right? Sometimes it might be more pure than others. But listen, we're all sinners saved by grace. We all drop the ball. We're all in need of continual confession and repentance and trusting in Christ. And so there's a danger here in denying him. And you go, I would never deny Jesus. Listen, friend, it's possible to deny him without, like, directly lying. Without, like, just saying outright renouncement. If you see that uh, Christians who stand up for the faith don't get promoted at work and you really want promoted, so you're going to downplay your Christian faith, you've denied him. You may not be like Peter who says, oh, I never knew the man, and then the rooster crows. You may, not never, you may never lie like that, but you may pad things and you may cast yourself in different lights to different people because you don't want people to think that you're like, like weirdly religious. Yeah, I, I got Jesus, but I'm not weird. We need more weird people. We need more people that are really sold out. And so he's, he's saying, be careful. Because a true disciple, last week we heard when he said, trust me, he said, trust me because the worst thing that people can do to you is kill you. They can't hurt your soul. They cannot hurt your soul. So there's nothing they can do to you. So why are you lying, disciple? Because if you don't fear death, then you don't need to lie. You can say, yes, I'm a Christian. I'm proud of it. I have nothing to be ashamed of. Because there's something worse than persecution. You think by being silent and avoiding getting made fun of, you've, you've missed the danger. The danger is not what your flesh and blood will do to you here. It's what Jesus says he will do when you stand before the Father. And he says, if you deny me before men, I'll deny you before my Father. Secondly, we find that we treasure the gospel by demonstrating an undivided allegiance to Christ. An undivided allegiance. We understand that the gospel uh, is true, that it's important, and that it costs something, and we're willing to pay the price. We understand the gospel, and even its harder parts, and in every situation where we find ourselves, we show our preference for Jesus and for what he wants. This is a terrible passage, verses 34 through 39. Please notice that they are red words. They're not my words. Jesus said this long before I ever read them, and this is what he has to say about an undivided allegiance. Don't assume that I came to bring peace on earth. Now, aren't we about to sing that in a couple weeks? Peace on earth, goodwill to men. Jesus says, don't assume that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to turn a man against his father and a daughter against her mother. A daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Big surprise there. And a man's enemies will be the members of his household. The person who loves mother or father more than me is not worthy of me. The person who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever doesn't take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Anyone finding his life will lose it, and anyone losing his life because of me will find it. 
Jesus makes a statement. He says, don't assume that I came to bring peace. I came to bring a sword. And we go, uh, what was that, Jesus? You're saying that your purpose is division, really? Aren't you the prince of peace? Aren't you the one who said, blessed are the peacemakers? Aren't you the one that says you're going to make the lion lay down with the lamb? How is it that you came to bring a sword? I've never seen a picture of Jesus with a sword. I've seen him with a little lamb around his neck. No sword. You're changing Christian art. I don't like Jesus with a sword. That's the truth. Jesus came to bring peace, did he not? But he came to bring peace between us and God. He never promised that when we get this right, that there's going to be peace on this level. He never promised that your, you know, your neighbors are going to love you more because you're a Christian. He never promised that you're going to get every possible uh, promotion at work because you're a Christian. As a matter of fact, when Jesus says that he came to bring peace, people who don't want anything to do with Jesus get mad that he offers peace because they don't think they need peace to be made for them. The offer of peace is offensive, but yet we know that in the midst of difficulty, Jesus brings peace. He tells us that the decision to be a disciple will bring division. And perhaps the crowning mark for the faithfulness of the church in the future will be if it's willing to pay that cost. Right now, you know what? It might be good for your reputation to go to church, but in 10 years, I think that will hardly be the case. Will the decision for you to be a disciple bringing division, will that encourage your faithfulness or will it make it wilt? There'll be some things we'll find out in the years to come. So Jesus makes a statement, not peace but a sword. He paints a picture. He paints a scenario in verses 35 through 36. And as I read through this, this is the best way I think to put it together. You have a faithful mother and father that are seeking to... Uh, uh, express their allegiance and faithfulness to God. And they are opposed within their own household by their son, his wife, and their daughter. He says that there's division within the household. And this sounds so difficult. Our kids don't believe the same thing we do. That the problem is within our own house. Listen, it's one thing for us to be persecuted by Muslims or to be persecuted by secularists or to be uh, persecuted by um, the government, but our family? See, we don't understand that because we have the privilege, perhaps, of having our whole... We have a family pew when we come to church. Your name's not engraved on the side, but like you can have your whole family sitting on a pew because there's not the kind of persecution that Christians face overseas. Listen to the testimony of this girl in a pagan land who is the only Christian that she knows, besides the missionary who shared the gospel with her. She said that her father would not speak to her since her conversion. And here are her words. She said, I can understand why he objects to my decision, because he doesn't know the gospel, and he thinks that all religion is superstitious. But I thought that my father would at least be happy that I'm not an alcoholic, a prostitute, a drug addict, or a criminal. I have never had so much joy in my life or so much love for my father, but he has cut me out. We look at this verse that says that Jesus came to bring a sword and not peace, and then he's come to set the members of their household against each other. And then we go, wow, it must be really tough for those people. But it's coming here. And if the gospel is not your treasure, you will not choose wisely. You'll choose your father instead of your savior. 
We're not the aggressors. We are the peacemakers. And we seek to exemplify that in how we live. But we cannot be peacemakers at the expense of truth. We cannot not love what we love because that's what people hate, is the thing that we love. And so Jesus provides the solution. In verse 37, he, he answers the question, what do we do in the midst of all this opposition? When there is animosity, when there is hatred, are we supposed to like tone things down? Are we supposed to like make sure we're really not offensive? Not that we're trying to be offensive, but what do we do? They hate us. How do we, how do we, how do we work this out? Do we, um, how do we make it gentler, kinder, and a little more friendly? Well, Jesus says instead of toning it down, we love him supremely. And that, that the supremacy of that love is demonstrated by a willingness to sacrifice everything. Listen to verse 37. The person who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. The person who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy than me, worthy of me. And whoever doesn't take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Anyone finding his life will lose it, and anyone losing his life because of me will find it. Jesus says he's the solution to the problem. And we read those verses, verse 37 and 38, we go, Jesus is like extraordinarily self-conscious in these verses. Me, 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 me. Who does he think he is? And he knows. He's your creator. If you will repent and believe, he's your redeemer. He's your savior. He's saying he is the most important person in the world. And he's asking for an unparalleled commitment. He's asking that there will be no higher obligation in your life and that he will take precedence over every relationship that you have. That there is an undivided allegiance to him. And so the answer in the world's hostility is not to tone it down, but to be wholehearted for him. He has all of our heart. We're not half-hearted. We're not lukewarm. We're not just going to raise a hand, fill out a card, merely attend church, shake somebody's hand. We're going to live it out. And we're going to be sold out for what Jesus wants. To be wholehearted means that Jesus has an all-surpassing value. So you know what that means? It means you go home today, you get out a, a piece of paper and a pencil, and you write down everything that you, you possess, and you try to figure out what it costs. And in this column over here, you put Jesus, and you figure out which one's worth more. You know what it's going to be? Every time. This column over here. He is all-surpassing. And for some of us, Jesus doesn't even surpass our desire for a new car. We'd rather have a new car than Jesus. And you hear, you hear Miss Elaine share this beautiful story about a simple guy who rode a bike and like saved up $56,000. We don't know if he ever made $50,000 in one year. You know, He tinkered with um, bikes and motorcycles. And listen, as a culture, we don't sacrifice for anything. We sacrifice for Super Bowl tickets. That's what we sacrifice for. We sacrifice for toys. You know, is there an iPhone 7 yet? You know, there's somebody camped out somewhere waiting for the iPhone 7. There's somebody, you know, Black Friday is what? Is it two weeks away? Is it next week? Yeah, I'm sorry. I'm not good with calendars or math. Sorry. Um, <laughs> um, there are people somewhere already camped out at a Walmart waiting for Black Friday to come. What a ridiculous waste of time. I'm sorry I said that in church, but it's true. It's ridiculous. And so to say that Jesus has all-surpassing value means he has to surpass something. And Jesus gives us two illustrations here. He says he has to surpass your family. 
has to surpass even your desire for life. He says, if you're not willing to take up your cross, deny yourself and follow me, you're not worthy of me. He sets the terms. Those are his words, not mine. Two things that we hold preciously dear, family and life. And Jesus says, in comparison to your allegiance to me, it needs to look like you hate those things. Now, we know, Jesus, this is not an excuse to be a bad dad. This is not an excuse to be a bad husband. It, it is an utmost priority for Christians to value their family. But the, the gap between number one and number two in our life should be so immense that nobody denies that our allegiance is completely and totally to Christ. So, parents, you want to find out what's important to you? I have a really easy test. The question is whether you'd be brave enough to do this. Ask your kids, what is most important in your life? And don't talk back and don't threaten them with punishment when they tell you. Is your wife the most important thing to you? Your home, your car, your job? Would your kids say that Christ is the most important thing for you? I'd be willing to wager that there would not be a lot of kids that would say that we have made explicit what we say we believe. Now, I believe there's people in this room for whom Christ is the utmost priority. I I think for most of us, he is. We just haven't made it clear. So ask your kids, what's most important in your life? And so he says this word about the cross. If you're not willing, take up your cross and follow me. And he's got to shock the disciples. This is the first word about the cross in Matthew. This is still really early in Jesus' ministry. And they're like, what's he doing talking about like an electric chair? An implement of death. One of the problems we have when we talk about cross bearing is like, you know, you get up tomorrow to go to work, you got a flat tire, and like you tweet out, you know, had a flat tire this morning. Guess that's my cross to bear today. Had ingrown toenail. That's my cross to bear today. You know, my bunions acting up. Gallbladder or lack of a gallbladder. You got something going on. (laughs) Quiet on the second row. You need to move the back. (laughs) You know, we just, we take all of the inconveniences of life, all the things that just aren't, aren't nice for us, and we say that's our cross. Is that what Jesus said? You know, hey, all the inconveniences, all the things you don't like, that's your cross to bear. No, that's not it. The cross is an instrument by which you crucify yourself. And he says, there's got to be a willingness to sacrifice for me. And it's not just like what is bad for your schedule. When he talks about the cross, he's talking about a willingness to sacrifice for him. What kind of pain are you willing to endure? What kind of persecution are you willing to bear? What kind of shame are you willing to go through? And he says, it's a paradox. But if you really want your life and you grasp for it, you'll never get it. The only way you will get life is by losing it for his sake. Turning it over to him. Saying, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And I ask the question, when it comes to being willing to sacrifice for Christ, who's man enough or woman enough to do that? Here's a real rah-rah moment for you. Stand up, be a leader. Who's capable of living this way on their own? Not one of us. Not a single cotton-picking one of us. Here's the good news, though. That's exactly where Jesus wants you to be. Because Christ following empowers cross-bearing. Listen, if you can bear the cross on your end, it's not the cross Jesus is talking about. Not in any way, shape, or form. The cross he's calling you to bear is one that he'll place on your shoulders for his sake. And so... Christ following enables us to be rejected by our family. 
It helps us to be faithful to the point of death because his, his spirit will give us the power to follow him. He concludes with a third point that's really kind of simple. He's talked through all this stuff about openly identifying with him and um, uh, you know, being undivided in our allegiance to him, above our family, above our own life. And he concludes his second sermon, his sermon on mission, by calling a little team huddle. All right, guys, come on. Let's get in here. He gets down and he says, all right, I've told you where to go. I've told you what to do. I've given you travel instructions. I've told you it's not going to be easy. I mean, they've been working out. They're big. We're like grasshoppers in their sight. This is not going to be an easy thing. There's going to be trouble. You got it? Trouble, capital T. You prepared? Yes, you are. I'm going with you. In spite of all the trouble, I need you to trust me. And I need you to treasure the gospel. And so here's the last instructions before we go out and take the field. You see who's on the team? Be nice to each other. Y'all need each other. It's a hard world out there. And we're going to break from our team meeting here, and we're going to go out and we're going to face the opponent, and if we don't stick together, we're not going to make it. That's what he says. He says in his third point that we treasure the gospel by preferring his people. Listen to verses 40 through 42. He says, the one who welcomes you meaning the disciples. The one who welcomes you, disciples, welcomes me, and the one who welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. But now he moves on to another group of people. Anyone who welcomes or receives a prophet because he's a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And anyone who welcomes a righteous person because he's a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives just a cup of cold water to one of these little ones because he is a disciple, I assure you he will never lose his reward. He goes through four classes of Christian workers. The apostles or the disciples, this prophet, this righteous person, and then these little ones. He's a disciple. You're giving him a cup of cold water because he's a disciple. He's a little disciple. He's barely, he's barely gotten out of his discipleship diapers. I mean, he's, he's a little one. He, he's, he's never going to be asked to teach a Sunday school class. He's never going to be asked to lead anything because he's a baby Christian. And he, he, he lists out all these people. And he says, guys, the world out there will hate you. The trouble is coming. Love each other. Prefer each other. You show that you treasure the gospel by preferring his people. So listen, we're human. We gossip. We backbite. We talk about each other. We just call them prayer requests. You know, we say, bless your heart. We do all that kind of stuff. And you know what? That's a great living illustration of how to be a pagan unbeliever. Doesn't the world do all that junk? It says, listen, take care of your spokespeople, your pastors, your Sunday school teachers, your small group leaders. Show them honor. A righteous man, somebody who's a good guy, a good lady. Receive them. Be hospitable to them. The prophets, the little ones. And when he says hospitality, he's not just talking about baking them brownies. Okay? He's not just talking about hospitality. Hospitality in the New Testament usually meant financial and physical support. Paul was a tent maker. When he went to a city to preach, he needed a place to stay, needed a base of operations. Someone took him in. That's hospitality. And so it's saying not just simple, casual, unconscious, but a sacrificialness to it. So what's your attitude to Christ's followers? What's your attitude to God's workers? Because you show that you treasure, your, treasure the gospel by how you treat them. And I love it because he says whenever you show kindness to these people, you show it to me.
He says, if you receive the disciples, you receive me. And if you receive me, you receive the one who sent me. So here's the cool thing. There's always got to be a, a balance of people who speak and people who support, people who go and people who send, people who work and people who give. You may never be the person who gets to go to a place to, to lead in a gospel endeavor, but you can support. And he says, even by giving a cup of cold water to a little bitty disciple, you get the privilege of being a full participant in gospel mission because you're supporting the work as it goes. You may yourself never be a goer. That may not be the role that God has for you. I hope that it is. It's a cool thing. But it's a cool thing to be a sender too. And not just like a, an unconscious sender, but a specific sender. It says this, that God cares about his mission. How do we know this? Because even when you give a cup of cold water in his name, he notices, and the Bible promises, he rewards. Mission is not a man-made idea. God is the one who sends them out. And he's the one who watches rewardingly. God is a missionary. He came to a foreign country called Earth, wore our clothes, took on our flesh. He was a, he's a sending God. He's a going God. He's in motion. He plans, he purposes, he strategizes, and he does. And the reason we give a rip about missions is because Jesus does. And he says, the job's not done. It's not going to be easy. But I promise to go with you and reward everyone along the way who helps you. You want to be a missionary Christian? You want to be a missionary disciple? If you do, you treasure the gospel. And you make it clear to a watching world. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this day. Challenging words. You tell us to make the gospel more important than our family and even our life. And I hear these words and I just go, Oh, God, I have to say this, and it seems so impossible to achieve. Then, God, I remember that that's exactly where you want us to be, completely dependent upon you and your power to fulfill your commission. So, God, help us to dig deep. Help us to really say that we want you to be the Lord of our lives, that we demonstrate it clearly to a watching world, that we treasure the gospel, and that everybody in Jesus' name we pray.